Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today in the program, we welcome back Governor Dan Malloy, who will be here to take some of your questions about the state budget and much more. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, our phone number is 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. He's been doing a series of town hall meetings across the state. More to come, and he'll be talking with you today. Governor Dan Malloy, welcome back to our program. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. I know one thing you're going to be talking about later on today is ending veterans' homelessness in Connecticut. This is something we've been uh, spending quite a bit of time on here at WNPR. We've been covering it closely. We've already in the state said that we've ended chronic homelessness for veterans. We're announcing today that we're essentially ending veterans' homelessness. Yeah, I, so the, the what happened is in August we were certified as having ended chronic homelessness, which meant we had a way to handle homelessness. We had a way to, to get uh, veterans into interim housing and then to permanent housing. Uh, and by the end of the year, we had, had actually uh, ended uh, uh, homelessness amongst veterans uh, uh, on a statewide basis. We've been notified yesterday, the HUD secretary called me to formally notify me that they had reached the conclusion that we were, I guess, the second state to do that in the nation. We were the first to end chronic homelessness uh, as they defined it. Uh, uh, it's due to a lot of great work. Uh, Katie Duran at the housing uh, department, uh, uh, Commissioner Klein, all of our partners at, at Veterans Affairs, our community groups, the folks who are working at uh, actual shelters to help us identify who's a veteran and 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 who who would qualify for this treatment. I'm very proud of it. I, we we were we signed on in 2014 that we would end homelessness amongst veterans by the end of uh, 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 last year, and we did it. And this is part of an overreaching plan, uh, or an over uh, overall plan that essentially says we're going to end chronic homelessness in our state by the end of this year. And are we heading in that direction? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, I I, I think that you know. Uh, remind the listeners that before I became governor, we didn't even have a state housing department, which is why um, uh, housing had, uh, I think, fallen to the to, to the wayside. Um, so it was being addressed in some communities, but, but there was no statewide coordination of those efforts. And since then, uh, we've committed a billion dollars uh, uh, to get housing uh, built, uh, including uh, many, many affordable units of 11,000 committed to last year alone, over 16,000 committed to uh, in the last few years. Um, these units are coming online. Uh, we're uh, making sure that people are being treated fairly. I think it's good for the economy. It helps us grow jobs. But but the most important thing you can do for a family uh, is to, to, to give it uh, a safe home, uh, to give it uh, a, a decent home, to, to, to have a home that you can um, sustain yourself and your family in. And, and I think that, that we're seeing that play itself out in many of our communities across the state. So, so of course, this, this transitions um, to a, a lot of what our conversation is, is today. Many people across the state are concerned about the state of the state budget. And I know you've been out talking to uh, people about it. We'll be talking about what you've been hearing from your town hall meetings in just a moment. But, but essentially, I think a lot of people are looking at some of the proposals you put forward across the board cuts to many agencies and saying, well, look, sometimes 
something like homelessness amongst veterans or homelessness amongst the general population, we're doing very, very well. Should we be concerned that we're going to backslide if we indeed make budget cuts to some really key agencies that do this work? No. Uh, explain a little bit more. Okay. Uh, I, I, the, you know, housing is, is, is a commitment. What I'm saying is we have to uh, address our core services, and, and, uh, and clearly housing is a core service. That doesn't mean that, that, that we can uh, afford to ignore economic realities. Uh, and uh, it's clear that the Great Recession uh, had long-lasting impact on the American economy. Um, and uh, we had all hoped, uh, economists across the country, across the world, had, had, had predicted um, that although it might be a little bit slower, it would be, in essence, a normal recovery from the Great Recession. That's not true. Uh, the Great Recession is more like the Great Depression uh, in its long-term impact on the economy. We're in a slow growth period of time. GDP growed, grew at 0.7% last uh, uh, quarter, um, uh, and most economists think it's going to grow a little bit over 1% uh, this quarter. We'll see what, what those numbers predict. In that uh, economic environment, and given the volatility, uh, uh, and the additional risk in things like the stock market, uh, revenues are not reaching targets. And that's not a Connecticut problem. I mean, you know, Massachusetts has admitted it's a problem. Uh, uh, New Jersey has a gigantic problem. Pennsylvania has a $2.4 billion uh, budget deficit in the current year, and they don't even have a state budget yet. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, Oklahoma, uh, Louisiana, uh, Texas, uh, our carbon-producing uh, states that, that had a real good run for a period of time and are now experiencing not just the uh, decline in carbon revenue, uh, but also just the volatility of the marketplace. So, you know, I just got a tweet uh, beforehand because they, they'd heard me talk about uh, difficult economic times, and, and a lot of people say, well, don't conflate um, the economy with the state budget. Many other people say don't uh, conflate the economy with the stock market. But in essence, what I hear you saying, not just today, but in some of the, the meetings that you've been having with people, is that these things are really connected. The fact that we can't get the tax revenue has in part to do with Wall Street. The fact that we aren't recovering as quickly as, as we should. Well, yeah, we're getting jobs back with our lower paying jobs. Talk this through a little bit and how it actually impacts the state budget that you have to put in sure. front of people. Well, you know, we should be very you know, proud of the fact that Connecticut has recovered uh, over 100,000 jobs that were lost in the Great Recession. But there is a reality of, of the American economy in the post-Great Recession period uh, that those jobs, uh, by and large, are, are lower-paying jobs than the ones that uh, disappeared in the, in the Great Recession. You know, you don't need to look any further than, than uh, in the financial field, where not only was there a downsizing, uh, a substantial downsizing uh, in that marketplace, but as jobs were recreated, in the financial markets and in the finance system, they tended to be created at, at, at lower, lower levels of, of compensation, even though high, perhaps, to, to, to other people's assumptions, uh, lower than they were in, the, in that period of time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think when you have as many people um, unemployed, you know, when I became uh, governor, I think we peaked at 9.4% unemployment uh, shortly after I was uh, a governor. Uh, even though we've gotten that down to 5.2%, uh, a lot of those jobs um, were lower-paying jobs. In fact, we have recovered all of the low-paying jobs lost in the Great Recession, and then some. Uh, on the higher uh, income side, uh, we've only recovered 8.2 percent of the highest uh, 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 portion. Uh, in the middle, we've done relatively well as well. But that has an impact. But I think it's, it goes beyond that. It's how people earn their money, and, and uh, uh, that's also uh, changing. And, and I think that's why Massachusetts and our, and our state are impacted, because we're both relatively 
dependent on, on high-income earners. Um, and uh, when high-income earners aren't earning as much as they once did, I'm not talking about the two-tenths of one percent. I'm talking about, you know, the next five or six percent uh, or seven or ten percent. Uh, it's going to have an impact, and it's having an impact in our state and in other states. Uh, are you essentially saying that Connecticut residents should be expecting a different level of gov- government service over the next several years as we dig out of this hole? Are you are you saying that we shouldn't expect as much from government as maybe we have in the past? No, I, I think we should hold government to a pretty high standard. Um, you know, we've made some very big investments over the last uh, five, four or five years in technology. Now it's time for that technology uh, implementation program to, to pay off. Well, we should find less expensive ways to, to, re- to deliver the services that we need to deliver. We need to educate our children. Uh, we need to have a criminal justice system. Uh, we need to take care of those with, with disabilities uh, and those who are dependent on uh, a government. What government does, in essence, with, with, with that group of folks is to spread the cost amongst uh, uh, our fellow uh, citizens uh, as opposed to uh, impoverish any single family. That, that, those, those are our core services, and I think that we need to concentrate on our core services and make sure that we're appropriately providing those and doing those and doing that in a way that's less expensive. I, I think what, what we're hearing people say though is those who are really concerned about people with disabilities in the states worry that across the board cuts in a time of crisis fall disproportionately on them that indeed the same and we talked about this on our program yesterday a little bit that that the same ten dollars or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars um that is spent in one place might have a different impact than if spent in another place. And many disabilities advocates, uh, people who are worried about uh, kids trying to get off of drugs, and we're going to talk about heroin a little bit on the program, um, that these people really need services that they feel are going to go by the wayside as part of these cuts. I don't believe that's the case, and we're going to do the best job um, we can to make sure that that's not the case. Uh, but, but the reality is, is Fewer dollars are coming in. And if fewer dollars are coming in, then fewer dollars are going to go out. And that's why I think we have to concentrate uh, on uh, very much on our core services, including those services for, for those folks who have real challenges in their life. Should we figure out a way to bring in more money to pay for some of these services, though? The revenue piece of this is, of course, a big question you get a lot. Um, you've said that you don't want to raise taxes on Connecticut residents. We had to go through one big tax increase before. You and I have certainly talked about this before. But y- you, you're painting a different economic picture right now than I think a lot of us thought we might see a couple of years ago. Is it time to start thinking about bringing in a, a new type of revenue? I don't believe so. No. And, no. And, and, I mean, I, we, uh, what, what type of revenue? Should we tax uh, the not-for-profit uh, uh, industry in our, in our, in our state? Um, I, I don't think that that's uh, you know, a concept that we want to visit. Um, so uh, I, I think what we have to do is hold ourselves to a very high standard to make sure that, that we are finding less expensive ways to deliver the services we need to deliver, that we're using the technology that we have invested in and we will invest in uh, and continue to invest in, uh, and that we, quite frankly, focus on uh, the core services, uh, the, uh, and, and, and clearly that includes uh, the folks who are most dependent on, on state government. Uh, but you can't be all things to all people. Uh, and I suppose I'll, 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 I'll say this, that, that ultimately um, we're one of 50 states um, uh, in a world of international competition. Uh, and ultimately, we need to be positioned uh, to benefit uh, in a slow-growth economy, at least from slow growth. Um, and what you don't want to see is a swing from slow growth, which we're in, along with 
all 50 states, um, uh, or at least the vast, vast majority of those states, uh, into no growth or, or, or where our economy uh, shrinks. Uh, one of the changes that you proposed in order to make Connecticut run more efficiently is providing a little bit more leeway, and this is in your proposal, it's not you've been uh, voted on in the legislature, uh, to provide more leeway to your commissioners, heads of departments, perhaps less line item uh, control by the state legislature. Some in the legislature are worried about that. I'm frankly less concerned about, <laughs> about how they feel about that. What I'm concerned about is, is people who say, Will this circumvent the public hearing process? Will it be less transparent how this money is being spent? What do you say to people who ask about that? Absolutely not. I mean, I, I, let's, we're friends here, right? So, um, how many times have I, how many times have I appeared on on this show in the last Lots six of years? Them. How many times have my commissioners appeared on this show? In Lots the last, of them, right? How many times have they appeared before uh, committees in the legislature? We answer questions. We don't dodge questions. We answer questions. And, and, and that's a dialogue. And that's called transparency. Um, I, I don't disappear. I don't refuse to, to answer uh, people's questions. I'm, I'm with the press on, on many occasions, multiple times per day, um, as, as are my, my commissioners. So I think that needs to continue. On the other hand, I, I have to, the reason to do what I've proposed is, is, is a couple of fold, I suppose, not the least of which is that, that the people we hire to manage, um, uh, uh, particularly in the social services, uh, uh, need some leeway because they are going to be asked to do more with less. Uh, that, that's the reality. Uh, and I think that they're closer uh, uh, at, at DDS to making those decisions or, uh, or, or uh, uh, Rod Bremby uh, with respect to the operation, which he has modernized over the last uh, five, six years. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that if you're going to have somebody manage, you hold them accountable for that management. Uh, if they don't uh, manage well, then you replace them. Uh, but they certainly there should be no lack of transparency and no lack of opportunity to test uh, those results. And, and when the lawmakers themselves and, come can to I you, say yeah. one other thing? Please, I mean, sure, this sure. is not. I, I proposed this a couple of years ago, and the yeah. legislature rejected it um, in times where we thought things were going to get better. But, but the legislature rejected it in part because they they see their role as oversight of of this process. I mean. When lawmakers come to you and say, you're essentially circumventing our branch of government by taking these line items away from us, what do you tell them? We have too many line items. I mean, I, I think that, that, you know, we have things in budgets that, you know, some state rep or some state senator got in 14 or 15 years ago. The person's are dead now. Uh, and because it was in the budget in the past, it continues to be in the budget. We have something which, which I think is diabolical in the state of Connecticut. It's called same services budgeting. So that no sooner is a, a budget adopted and in balance that someone can say, hey, but two years from now, you're going to have a multi-billion dollar deficit if you provide all the services you've been providing including some of the ones that were discontinued years ago, uh, no longer in the budget, but OFA will look at, they were in the budget at one point, what would that cost to bring those back and what would it cost to, to, to add? Um, it, it puts uh, spending on you know, automatic pilot or the assumption that uh, we're going to have double digit, uh, uh, in many cases, or high single digit uh, growth in, in, uh, in revenue. It hasn't happened. And nor have we, nor have we actually ended up budgeting that way uh, two years later when everyone said you'd have X, Y, or Z. So, uh, uh, you know, that I, I think we need to modernize the system. I think we need to modernize our, our approach. Uh, and the other thing I'll say to, to members of the legislature is that you, you're going to have a real hard time this year. Um, uh, uh, we're not going to spend more money uh, than we bring in. 
And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, if, if you insist on, on budgeting differently, then rebuild the budget you want, but understand that we're not going to spend more money. Uh, we're talking with Governor Dan Malloy. Let's go to the phones and take some of your questions. Uh, and a lot of people do have questions, including Joe in Hartford. Hi, Joe. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking the call. Listen, uh, I support uh, the governor's uh, administration and everything that he does. Uh, I do have one comment and one question. The comment is, um, you know, from, from my perspective, I think that the governor's uh, administration could do a better job in communicating the terms of our deficit. Uh, you know, at one point we hear this surplus and we have a $350 million deficit and a $500 million billion dollar deficit and we're sort of all over the place and it's not a consistent message and i think that kind of grows the public a little bit and makes us a little bit of weary about um you know what's really kind of do do we really have a handle on that Mm -hmm. so So let let me hand can you hang on let let me just handle that one so we don't lose it uh uh, listen we're required to post to, to to give uh uh income numbers and and receipt numbers on a fairly regular basis it, it's written into statute um and i began saying at the end of last june uh, a year you know la- last june uh, that the volatility uh, in the stock market was going to produce lower returns in, in the state of Connecticut. When I said that, people said, oh, look, he's setting us up. Uh, uh, he's not being truthful. He wants to make more cuts in the budget. That's what people said. Uh, I was right. Um, uh, and, and in point of fact, it got worse towards the end of the year. Uh, and when we got GDP growth numbers for the fourth quarter of last year, uh, on a national basis, the economy, uh, GDP only grew at 0.7%, um, which was, you know, our target historically has been to grow at 3%. So so clearly there's something going on. Part of it's on Wall Street, part of it's oil, part of it's China, part of it's Europe. I watch this stuff every single day, and I'm not going to stop telling people the truth uh, as that truth evolves. And truth does evolve. You learn more each day. I, I think part of, and, and Joe, thank you very much for that. I mean, I think part of what Joe's getting that, though, is just the, the way we communicated. I we, we are all friends here, and, and we've talked in, in, in the past about whether or not Connecticut has a deficit, whether or not we actually can say that when the revenues don't track the right way, we may have a deficit. And we've actually argued about the semantics of that. I think what Joe and many people who talk to me say is, well, let's just say if we have a deficit that we have to fill a hole with, let's call it a deficit. Well, okay. A, a deficit is when you end the year. Right. Not in balance. And we can't do that. Right. right. We're not allowed to. Well, in essence, you can. You just have to then correct it the next year, um, uh, which is the the legal requirement. Sure. Um, uh, So the use of the word deficit, I guess what I I, I, here, I have a proposal. Sure. You and I will be will be the only people in the state to use the term potential deficit. Potential. Because that's what we have. If, If we don't end in balance by June 30th, uh, um, and, and if we don't anticipate that we're going to do that, if we don't change our behaviors, then we have a potential deficit. You don't have a deficit until you certify the numbers after July 1st. I, I like that. I like I, so I, you, I'm going to hold you to I it. love the term potential deficit. I don't love the, the notion that we have one, but I love the term itself. Uh, Travis in Newington, but, but go ahead. Let me just yeah, say one thing yeah, real, yeah. before Travis. We always have a potential deficit. Well, sure. Yeah. But some sometimes that, that potential looms larger than others. And Abs- it, it ab- feels now as though <laughs> that is more in our face than it has been at other times in the past. Sure. And so yeah. imagine how I felt when I inherited a state that had a potential two-year deficit of $7 billion. <laughs> imagine how that felt. <laughs> I, I can't imagine it felt very well. Uh, Travis in Newington, go ahead. Hi. Good morning, Governor. And uh, thanks for letting me on this, your show. I love the show. Um, so we understand that you don't want to raise more revenue by raising taxes, but what are we doing to make government service more efficient? 
Um, you know, DOT's already done cost analyses that show there's a 46 to 63 percent cost savings by bringing more work back in house. And uh, we were wondering if you've done any analyses to find out how much money we spent on outsourcing in a year. I, I'm not sure anybody believes that that there's anywhere near that kind of savings. Advocates for hiring more state employees might believe that. Uh, and and if it didn't cost us so much money uh, on an ongoing basis with respect to our unfunded pension obligations, that may make more sense. It, it, people need to understand this. And in, in, uh, in basic numbers, for every employee that we pay one dollar to, we're paying ninety cents for benefits. Just, I want that to sink in. Um, now, that's not the employee's fault. Uh, in fact, it's a lot of politicians' faults. It's, for, it's former governors and, and, and former legislators' faults uh, because we didn't fund our pension system properly. Even though we admitted in 1984 we had a gigantic problem, they didn't fund it. In fact, I'm the 88th governor of the state of Connecticut. I'm the first person to fully fund the, the pension obligation. Is there anything we can do about that? But that's not the only component <laughs> yeah, part. Sure, of course. Well, our our, our health care benefits cost about 14 uh, percent of that, of that 90 cents. So 14 cents goes for health benefits for current employees uh, and uh, and what it's going to cost to, to uh, what it costs to pay for retirees. So there are these gigantic built-in costs um, that no one addressed. Now we addressed them. We began the process addressing them uh, in in 2011. And perhaps we wouldn't have to have this discussion if we were experiencing five percent economic growth. But we're not. Um, uh, in fact, my friends in New Jersey predicted that they would uh, uh, have 5.5 percent. That's why they had a $2 billion deficit in, in, in a year when we were struggling with a couple of hundred million. So, I mean, I, 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 there is a reality um, that we need to confront. If, if, if your economy is going to grow at 1 percent a year or 2 percent a year or 3 percent a year, then you can't spend or even assume you're going to spend in the future at 5.5 to 9.9 percent. It just it doesn't follow unless you're prepared to raise taxes every year until the last person left in the state turns out the lights. <laughs> we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with more of your questions for Governor Dan Malloy. We're taking them on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live and also at 860-275-7266. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today on the program, we're talking with Governor Dan Malloy. He's taking some of your questions at 860-275-7266. Talk about the state budget and much more. Let's uh, get to some of your calls, including Catherine in New Haven. Hi, Catherine. Go ahead. You're on with the governor. Yes, hello. Thank you so much for accepting my call. I so appreciate it. Uh-huh. I do have a quick question for the governor. Um, and the question is, well, it's a two-part question. The first part of my question is, and I apologize that I don't know this, but I'm very interested to know the answer. What proportion or what percentage of the um, state expenditure um, is spent on pensions? And the second part of my question is, um, has there been any recent discussion on maybe looking at reforming the pension payout structures, i.e. Um, perhaps putting in a 401k? similar to what's been done in private industry because pensions have been far too expensive. Sure. Um, well, I, I, to know, I have comments on that. Great, Catherine. Thank you very much for the questions. Governor? So I, I don't have the percentage, and I apologize that, that I mean, I I know a lot about the budget, but I don't have that number in my in my head. Neither do but, I. <laughs> but, but what I will tell you is uh, our uh, pension and post-employment benefit and current benefit package is about 90 percent of salaries. 
So that, 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 that gives you a, 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 an idea of, of where we are. And again, I want to emphasize that's not the fault of any current employees. I, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But it is a predicament that we find ourselves in uh, and that we, be, we made great strides in 2011 um, in my first year as governor in, in addressing that problem. But, but we made that progress with the assumption that, that the post-Great Recession world would be very similar to the pre-Great Recession world. And that's clearly not the case. And, and no one's really even debating that anymore. So, so, so we move on. So, but what do but, we do? And that's what no, I was no. asking before. But what do we do about that? Because I think that when people hear that, and, and all of our hands are tied by what these deals that were made years and years ago, but then we, we think, well, but... But then what do we tell people who need services right now? What do we need, uh, tell people who want to get the roads fixed or want to do any of the things that we need to do as a state moving forward that we just have to accept the fact that we're going to pay 90 cents out of, no. out of, a, out of a dollar uh, to someone who stopped working years ago? Um, well, it's not, it, I want to be clear. It's not, it's not that. It, it's all of those folks going back, going forward, and, and, I and who are currently paid. But, just because I, cause I, don't, yeah. I don't want to, because, because people shouldn't be blaming state employees. I don't think you know. A bunch of politicians yeah. uh, and, and some others uh, yeah. made really bad decisions um, and, and hid things from, from the public. I, I am not about hiding this problem. I, I want to have a, an honest conversation uh, uh, about it. And quite frankly, what I would like to do um, is to make sure that we're going to address this so that no one comes up uh, a, a gigantic loser. Uh, in, in the future. Um, and, you know, so we have saved uh, uh, tens of billions of dollars based on what we did in, in 2011. But that's not enough. Uh, and we're going to have to revisit this issue. And, and we could we can wait till 2022. Although right now we're in negotiations on things like pay and work rules and and uh, uh, and other rules with with almost every state employee organization um, uh, in the state, almost everyone. Um, uh, and, and those are going to be tough discussions because I think labor came in assuming, hey, we're going to have 3.5, 4% growth in revenue and, and we should get our piece of the pie. And what we're saying is, hey, we've got to have serious discussions about where we are today. It's not based on what we did in the past. It's got to be based on what we can afford to do in the future. And, and I know Bill wants to talk about that. Bill, you're in Windsor Locks. Go ahead. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, Stan. Staying with that same discussion there, uh, given the present projected revenue shortfall, uh, what are you and what are you asking the legislation to do about the loopholes in the state pension system that allows excessive pension padding? And will you look into legislation to claw back these illicit gains? Well, I don't think there are any illicit gains. I, uh, let, let's be very clear. I mean, I, you know, illicit ha is, is a term that has legal significance, and I don't believe there are any illicit gains. Uh, I think a bunch of people gave away the House um, uh, believing that the economy was always going to grow uh, very rapidly uh, and assumed that, that this system would pay for itself somehow, some way, that some governor would straighten it out. Well, guess what? I'm trying to straighten it out. Uh, and I'm trying to have uh, a very serious discussion uh, with the folks who are the beneficiaries of, of a system and the folks who pay for that system. Uh, and it's about fairness and it's about stability uh, and it's about preserving. Uh, I, I said in my speech that I believe people who work for uh, the state for decades should 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 be should be able to account on uh, on, a, on a system uh, that will pay them a pension. I, I firmly believe that's the case. On the other hand, I know this one isn't 
sustainable. So how do, how do we get from where we are today to where we need to be? And that's true of things like wages and work rules and, and, and all the rest. Um, let's get to some more phone calls in just a moment. Uh, Donna is uh, asking by email, I'm a firm believer in providing services to those in need. Why don't you raise income tax by 0.25%, gas tax by 0.01% per gallon, and put toll booths at the borders? Well, I'm not going to do anything on revenue. Uh, listen, I want to spend a lot of money on transportation. I mean, I think I, think every, I, I thought everyone in the state knew that, uh, that I believe that fundamental to our economic growth in the future is that we address 40 years of under uh, investment in transportation. We need to expand bus service by 40 percent. We need to repair our highways and bridges. The, the majority of our bridges are deficient at this point. Um, uh, we, need to, we need to invest in – we need to do all of that. Uh, what I've asked the legislature to do, and we almost got it done, and I want to see it get it get get done, uh, is that we uh, devote uh, that that we actually have a constitutional amendment that says that any money that goes is raised for transportation can only be spent on transportation. If, if we get that, that's called a lockbox. Uh, then I think we can have other discussions about how we do other things in the transportation arena. Now, a whole bunch of folks will say, "Oh, you know, uh, you did some things last year." Yeah, you know what we did? We we, we recognize that we had a gigantic problem in transportation that we should devote half a cent of our sales tax to trans transportation, um, and we raised revenue to offset that in, in other areas. Likewise, the legislature said we have a gigantic uh, discrepancy um, in uh, property taxes. People in uh, Hartford pay 77, uh, 77 mills uh, on car values, and people in Greenwich pay, pay 12 mills. Uh, it's a gigantic disadvantage to, to live in, in Hartford. Um, and they took half a cent to do that, and they raised other revenue to, to pay for that. Um, it, it, there, there wasn't a lot of net new revenue um, uh, created, uh, but we just but we decided to to devote money to transportation and devote money to property tax uh, relief. Um, uh, that's what we did last year. I think we need to do the lockbox because I think I think there's a growing consensus uh, that we have to address transportation. I'm trying to do it, but we can't go. We, we can't ask the people of Connecticut to have that that honest discussion until the legislature and the governor and uh, are honest with them about how the money is going to be spent. When your uh, DOT commissioner Jim Redeker was on our program last month, we were talking about some of the plans that you and he have have put forward things that you want to do, including the, the widening of, of I-95. For the first time in, in that conversation, I heard that, that he's talking about tying any plan to widen I-95 to congestion pricing on that roadway. Is that part of the, the Malloy plan for how we widen I-95? No. It's not. No. No, I, I don't. I, I, I'm not set on any single way to, to finance this. Um, uh, we know we're going to get a certain amount of money from the federal government. We know that we get a certain amount of money from gas taxes, but that's going to go down. We've devoted a half cent. Uh, undoubtedly, in the, in the years to come over the next 30 years, we're going to have to identify additional uh, uh, revenue sources because gas taxes are disappearing. I mean, every time somebody puts an electric engine uh, or, or in a, a car – Exclusively or alongside of a combustion engine, uh, you know your your revenue is going down. Uh, but I'm I'm not prepared to have a discussion about what we do in the future until uh, the legislature um, uh, uh, trusts the public, uh, puts the amendment on the ballot, and we have a lockbox. And I think what he was re referring to is we had had a conversation about many uh, people who study this pretty closely have said that the spending of any money on widening I-95 would actually not do what it's intended to do. It could increase congestion because it would force more people onto the roads. What he was responding no, to is the, is the notion that the, the studies that have been done look at the widening of a highway like 95 in conjunction with congestion pricing actually makes some sense in that you both 
get more revenue for it, and you hopefully keep some people off of that roadway, thus lessening congestion? Well, first of all, I'm going to say this. I I think you repeated a talking point that that folks who don't want to to invest in in highways uh, frequently use. But let's be very clear about what we're talking about doing in Connecticut. We're talking about improving our bus system and our rail system first. And that's a very different proposition than saying we now also have – all we're going to do is, is address congestion on our highways. Let, let me just but, – But meaning before any attempt to, to widen I-95. Right. Okay. Yeah, because because we, we're nowhere near in a position to, to begin that work. And, and we could be – and we actually – we're already doing the bus. We're already doing the rail. We're already designing the walk bridge replacement. We're already designing uh, uh, the modernization of three other bridges in, the, in that corridor. We're already talking about uh, having more regular service to Danbury. We're already talking about having more regular service to, to Waterbury. We're actually uh, doing the signalization system on, on, on that rail line right now as I speak to you, and we've made other improvements along the way. If, if we weren't doing that, then, then, then the talking point might be applicable to Connecticut. Uh, but it's not now. And then here's the other point. Um, uh, it, it, not everybody's on a rail line. And nor are we likely to spend the money to acquire rights of way uh, to build a rail line or a subway line so that every citizen could do that. But I believe that every citizen has the right to make a decision to live in a community where they don't need a car. I absolutely agree with that. And I think that we need, need to build that out in, in our state. Not that every city could be lived or every town could be lived in without a car. But if you want to live um, in, in places, we're going to have plenty of those, just like you don't need a car in Brooklyn or you don't need a car, not, not all of Brooklyn, much of Brooklyn or much of Manhattan or, or, or much of the outer boroughs. We should be like that. Uh, let's go to Michelle, who's calling from Glastonbury. Uh, Michelle, you're on with Governor Dan Malloy. Yes. Hi. Thank you for taking my, talk, my call. Um, my name is Michelle Mudrick, and I'm the legislative advocate for the Connecticut Conference of the United Church of Christ. We serve approximately 235 congregations in the state, and we believe that any short-term benefits from a Hartford-area casino would be heavily outweighed by its economic, social, and public health costs. Governor, do you support another casino in the state? Well, what are what are the costs? Of your, I mean, since you've calculated them, what are those costs? Because you're making a statement that one outweighs the other. And by the way. I'm I'm neutral on casinos. Uh, this is not my proposal. But you've made a statement that you've calculated what those co- or implies that you've calculated what those costs are. What are they? Because uh, what we know is we've lost thousands of jobs in the state of Connecticut, particularly in the eastern portion of the state, uh, because of the ubiquitous nature of gaming in the United States as it currently exists. Listen, I, I've said this, and I'm going to continue to say it uh, every day. I, I, I grew up in a, in, in a United States where there was only one place where you could go and legally gamble, and, and quite frankly, I think we were better off then. So that's, that's, that's where I begin this discussion. Um, uh, what I would say to you is uh, the folks who get paid uh, in the hotels at casinos or the folks who get paid to make food at the casinos or the folks who work at casinos, um, they think out, their benefits are outweighing uh, uh, the cost, I can assure you. So I think, I think in, in fairness, we have to have this discussion. And if we do anything with respect to gaming, I think we should always keep those concerns uh, which your church has identified. And to some extent, I very much agree with. Uh, but, but, but to make a blanket statement that, that one outweighs another, let, let me assure you, if you lost your job uh, in, uh, in a casino over the last uh, five years in Connecticut, and, and by the way, I, I'm the governor who had to manage the, the loss of all of that revenue, um, you thought that job was pretty important. Uh, sure, no, I couldn't, agree, I couldn't agree with you more about the job piece, but 
um, there was a report that was put out by the Institute for American Values, a report from the Council of Casinos. It was an independent, nonpartisan group of scholars and leaders, you know, who came together to examine the role of casinos in America, and they've made informed decisions about the debate of um, gambling as public policy. And the report shows, you know, when casinos are um, prevalent in states, you know, gambling addictions increase. That leads, you know, to debt bankruptcies, broken families, crimes increase. It really drains the wealth from communities. It but but un- unemployment does that, too. Un- unemployment uh, drains a community, uh, breaks up a family, and causes uh, b- bankruptcy. I-, I mean, I get your point, and you get my point, I think. I, I think this is a very respectful uh, uh, discussion. Uh, and again, I-, I-, I tell you, I'm-, I'm honestly neutral on this issue, uh, and I'm studying it and-, and trying to understand it, but I keep asking folks, what are what are those costs? And, and-, and I think you're, in fairness, you're repeating um, a, a, a report in general terms about what those those costs are. Uh, but I know what I, I know that how many thousands of jobs we've lost are that we've lost thousands of jobs at the two casinos. And I know that that's had a devastating effect on a, on a lot of families and, and will continue to have a devastating effect on the eastern portion of the state that became, in my opinion, overly reliant on that that industry. Uh, now we're facing uh, more uh, challenges in, uh, from the ubiquitous nature of gaming in Massachusetts, in New York, uh, in Rhode Island, uh, in other locations locations. Um, whatever we do in Connecticut is not going to change that we have two casinos currently available in the state, two of the largest casinos uh, in the country, uh, and that we have multiple gaming outlets um, uh, in surrounding communities. That that nature is not going to change. And so then I think in, in that environment, you have to make a, an informed decision about whether an additional casino in Connecticut adversely uh, impacts uh, uh, the state's economy or, or has these additional costs, which I, I agree that there, there, there are additional costs, um, you, you have to put it all in balance. I, I, I get your point. I think you get mine. I, and just the, the last thing on that, I think, to, to pick up on Michelle's point, you said that you have been the governor during this great job loss uh, that happened because the gaming revenues kind of tanked over the course of the last couple of years. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering what if... if you know, might we not just let our friends in in Massachusetts invest heavily in this in this product that seemingly is not going to be as profitable moving forward? I mean, can we not make that bet ourselves to use a pun and say, let's not get into the gaming business. Let's put our money elsewhere. Let's have different sorts of jobs. Let Massachusetts take the tanking gaming industry. Well, let's again, let, let's point out that Massachusetts is in the process of building multiple casinos uh, in uh, all of their uh, in many of their jurisdictions. Um, uh, we serve a portion of that marketplace uh, at our two existing uh, uh, casinos, uh, one in particular. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, do you win a competition by not competing, <laughs> right? Uh, or do you lose a competition by not competing? And what are the costs of doing either of those? Now, I, I do think, and I, and I give a lot of credit to the Indian uh, uh, tribal nations, um, that they are doing the very best they can to position themselves as the go-to resorts, whether it's for uh, great entertainment, sports, uh, uh, conventions, and all the rest of it. I, and I don't think they're going to be replaced as the go-to uh, uh, events uh, or event locations. Uh, they are going to have uh, a great challenges uh, in the future with respect to, to market share um, uh, because of these other things. And quite frankly, I'll go, I'm going to go back to exactly where I began. I'm, I, I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm, I, I wish we didn't have gaming uh, at all. 
Well, thank you very much for your, your questions, too. Uh, keep them coming at 860-275-7266. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, we'll go through a whole bunch more stuff. People want to ask a lot of questions of Governor Dan Malloy. You can join us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to be talking about the arts in Connecticut with Christina Newman-Scott, who's the new director of culture for the state of Connecticut. We're also going to be visiting with Susan Campbell and uh, learn about one family's family's fight to keep off the streets of Hartford. It's the latest in our housing and homelessness series. Hopefully you can join us for that. Today, Governor Dan Malloy joins us, taking some of your questions. A lot to get to, so some rapid-fire questions quickly from me and from some other folks here. Yes, no. Uh, You've introduced legislation to make Narcan more widely available. Uh, We've been talking a lot in the state about the heroin epidemic. What do you plan during this legislative session? What do you plan over the course of the next couple weeks to do to try to stem some of the problems? Because especially in southeastern Connecticut, but across the state, people are very, very worried about a real scourge that is happening around heroin overdose. It's it's first of all, it's not the southeastern portion of the state. It's it's everywhere. It's in you know we had a kid die, a young person die at a coffee shop in Trumbull. Uh, This is not a regional problem. I've been talking about this since 2011. Finally, other people are talking about it. I proposed legislation in 11, in 12, 14, 15, and 16 on this issue. What I'm asking is uh, WNPR uh, to cover this every single day. List the names of people who are dying. Let the public know that the scourge is the fact that heroin, uh, 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 opioid, uh, and and synthetic uh, are purer than they've ever been. Uh, In fact, we know that heroin has been uh, 72% pure in some sales in Connecticut. Now, when I was growing up, that was 15 to 30%. Uh, and, and, and heroin was unbelievably expensive. In fact, if you were a heroin addict, you had to commit a lot of crime to be a heroin addict because it was so expensive. Now you can get high on heroin or synthetic for as little as $3.50. Of course, you can die for as little as three dollars and fifty cents. And one of the yeah, and one of the ways ways people are getting hooked on heroin is through uh, what we hear is an overprescription of opioids from regular old doctors giving you know uh, prescriptions to people, and there's too many loose Percocets or whatever out on the street. How do we deal with that problem? Uh, I don't think there's a a, a, a dentist uh, who should prescribe more than three days of of any of those drugs uh, at a time. Um, I don't think. Uh, uh, if you have uh, 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 knee surgery, that you should get more than, you know, five days. Uh, and, and, and then if you're still in pain, you have to present yourself and get the next couple of days. I mean, I think that, that I, 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 listen, these drugs are great. These are game-changing drugs, game-changing drugs on the good side. But they're also game-changing uh, uh, drugs on the dangerous side. Um, you know, the, the largest group of people, uh, age group, uh, becoming addicted to opioids uh, is 55 and older because guys like me have to have dental surgery or knees replaced or hips replaced. And, and if you get a 30-day uh, 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 prescription, um, you could end up, and you use it all, you could end up uh, um, being dependent. Could, can we, as a state, can we mandate that? Can we do yeah. more than just suggest that? Yeah, I've already, we, we've already done that. I mean, we, we've, we're doing those things. Uh, we, we, everyone has to check the, the, the registry. Every, every uh, guidelines... Uh, have been formulated and given out. Uh, um, I really think that this is an issue. I'm not blaming WNPR. We, not, we have I, stories I, about it every day, I, I, and I can I, send I, you all the links I, if you no, like. I, but I mean, <laughs> no, and you do. Yeah, but but. Newspapers uh, haven't covered this until relatively recently. Radio stations haven't covered this at all. 
uh, and most TV stations have. And I, I, I'm, I'm appealing. I am appealing to the folks in the media to cover this on a daily basis, to report each and every death, because what's happening, we, we have kids going out to celebrate their 16th, 18th, 21st birthdays. Uh, some friend says, hey, why don't you get high with this bag that costs $10, $10 and they wake up dead. That's what's happening in our state. And it's not just our state. This is a nationwide problem. In fact, we have reformed our laws to a much greater extent than any other state has in the nation. We had the director, uh, what we used to call the drug czar, come to Connecticut to thank us for the leadership role we're playing. But I'm asking everyone else to play that leadership role. Let, let's, let's have an honest conversation. These people who are dying, they're not bad people. They make mistakes. They get hooked. Or in many cases, in some cases, I shouldn't say many cases, some cases, first time they've ever used the drug. They just didn't know how pure it was. Mm -hmm. They didn't know, you know, they ingest it differently than, than when, when I was growing up. This is a very different situation, and I've been saying this for years, and I'm glad that, that folks are paying more attention. Uh, let's go to the phones. Mary in Hartford. Quickly, if you would, Mary, go ahead. You're on where we live. So other states, Massachusetts, New York, Vermont, are investing in growing local jobs by revitalizing their natural resources for the long term. And we're seeing today a lot of municipalities selling off public natural resources like the bottled water facility in Bloomfield. They're sucking resources out of the state. They're, they're missing opportunities to create exciting jobs for young people instead of service jobs. Even small provisions in the state budget uh, would pay, you know, like paving parking lots, uh, isn't including things like green infrastructure for stormwater management, things that create regenerative resources and grow local healthy jobs for the future. How are you going to make this transition? And Because it's just not happening here, and maybe that's why uh, young people are leaving. Or well, Mary, I'm going to leave it at that just because there's two parts to that. I'd love for you to comment first about what Mary talked about, about the Bloomfield water bottling plant. This is a local issue, but it's caused an awful lot of an uproar. It's something we're covering here. What is your take on that? What do you know I, about I, this? I, I don't. You don't have any sort of... I, I, I'm not, it's not an issue that, that, uh, that, that has been on, on my screen, quite frankly. But, but let me answer the, the broader question, and, I, and I'll become educated about it, and next time you ask me, I'll know more, more about it. Um, uh, the, the premise of the statement and the question is absolutely false. Um, we are making uh, unbelievable investments in sustainability. Uh, uh, we're winning competitions in sustainability. On brownfield remediation, uh, during my administration, we've invested more in brownfield uh, remediation in Connecticut, primarily in our urban but in some rural areas, more than the federal government has in the same period of time with the exception of super uh, uh, hazardous locations. Um, uh, we are doing a lot. We, we've, we're adding parkland. We're acquiring open space. Uh, we're protecting water. We've been recognized as, as, as a state that is, we're recognized nationally as leading on the water challenge, uh, leading on the sustainability challenge, leading on the brownfield remediation challenge, uh, uh, leading on the drug challenge. I mean, we're, we're recognize it, but, but people repeat things as if they're true when they're not. Uh, we're playing a very active role. A report came out last week um, uh, that indicated that we're up to 191 megawatts of solar energy in the state. We were, we were dead in the water six years ago. Uh, we, we, are six, we are the second most concentrated state in New England uh, with respect to solar. Well, way behind um, where uh, Massachusetts is, but we were dead in the water six years ago on, on, on solar. We were dead in the water on, on uh, things like wind energy. Uh, we're, we're now building those facilities right and left. I, I have to just follow up on something somebody uh, called in and wanted to ask about. 
um, hospital beds available for addicts. We did a story just the other day, our own Harriet Jones, hearing from people in southeastern Connecticut saying, I've got a daughter on the street. I need to get her into a place for treatment, and I just can't. And the question comes back to the start of the the program. Do we have the uh, beds, the facilities available to treat addicts, and is any of that going to be impacted by the cuts that we have to make? And I'm sorry we just have a couple minutes, but go ahead. No, the beds situation will not be, and I hope that we can continue the process of adding beds for emergency treatment. The the, the problem, uh, first of all, uh, what we really need to do uh, is make sure that we don't get more addicts. So we need to draw a line, right? Um, and, And that's where the media and parents and everybody else comes in. Um, secondly, uh, we, we need to, to, to make beds available. But generally what happens in a bed is you get somebody clean. That's what you do. Um, uh, what we need is to sustain those efforts once somebody is clean. So, for instance, just this week we announced a program at, at DCF where we have piloted a program with families with children under the age of three who have substance challenges in, in the home, and that's our number one reason we take kids out of, out of uh, uh, households. Uh, we've worked with 250 families. Uh, we have a 40% better uh, recovery rate in those families. We're going to extend that to another 500 families. We, we're smart investing. In, in essence, we're, we're getting money from philanthropy. We're investing it in this system. The reimbursement will, will pay for better results. If, if we can continue 40 or even 35 percent um, uh, better outcomes, then we're going to take a lot fewer children uh, and we're going to have and hopefully have to have put fewer people in beds as well. So this, this is a comprehensive effort. I've got great commissioners wa- working across um, um, what used to be silos uh, to address this issue. And, and again, I'm just happy that we're having the discussion. And, and I'm sorry we just have a, a minute for this, but it's Kathleen br- coming back to a key question here. Aren't Connecticut nonprofits businesses too? We collectively employ Absolutely. thousands. This proposed budget, she says, makes us challenging to plan. So just that last minute, talk about that, the nonprofit jobs that may be at risk if we have to cut back on the size of state government. Uh, yeah, listen, we're going st- to gonna cut back on the size of state government, um, and, and we're going to do our utmost to protect those core services, and the not-for-profit community is a gigantic part of it, uh, and, the, and, and we've done some great work in the not-for-profit community, and, and the, she probably knows that because we have grant programs, we have capital programs that didn't exist, we're working with that industry, we've increased reimbursements uh, uh, when they hadn't been increased uh, at all, uh, not universally, but in many areas, uh, we're doing the best we can. Uh, Governor Dan Malloy, it's always good to see you. Thank you so much for coming in and answering some questions for us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Our program is produced by Tucker Ives with Lydia Brown. Continue this conversation online, wntr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Thanks to our friends at CTN today. I'm John Dankosky. This is where we live.